Well, we are in that sort of really unique liturgical moment. Uh, it is um, almost what I call a pregnant moment, um, a moment before something else. It's a time of waiting uh, between uh, the ascension of Jesus and the gift and the descent of his spirit. Uh, that's the time we are in our text today, in Acts, it's the time we are in our liturgical cycle today. Uh, when we celebrate that moment in time when that first generation experienced the, the fullness of the absence of the physical Jesus before receiving the gift of the spiritual, but nonetheless real presence in his spirit. A time of waiting. Now, it's a unique time. Uh, it's unique to them, but not to us. We know that the gift has been given. We know that they have received it. Uh, and so we do not wait as they waited. We wait reflecting on how they wait. Uh, and that's a good place to be and to remind ourselves as to where we are. Remember again what it is that they were waiting for and why it is that they were waiting for it. Uh, Jesus um, said to them while they were, uh, while he was still with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. To wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's speaking again, obviously, of the gift of his Spirit, a gift which he says the prophets themselves has promised from old. Our Father has said, this is my gift to you. One day I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and they will be my people. <laughs> That's the promise that was given through the prophets, and now he says was quickened through the advent of John. John's advent began this last generation of waiting. And he says, John baptized with water, but I tell you, you will be baptized by my Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for this powerful gift to be given, the promise of the ages, <clears throat> the history of Israel coming to its fullness through the gift of God's very own Spirit. That is what they were waiting for, but remember why they were waiting for it. In the verse 8 of the chapter, he says, Jesus says, you will receive power, the power that comes from this Spirit, when that Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were commanded to wait for a gift that would empower them a gift that would empower them to fulfill the vocation that they had been given. To be my witnesses, you need the gift of my spirit. So that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the gift of God 
that it will enable them to fulfill the vocation of God that God had given to them, that they could fulfill their role within his story. That's what they were waiting for. And we are reflecting now on that waiting. Because obviously for this first generation, what they did between the day of Ascension and the day of Pentecost was a very effective thing. They waited well because they were blessed abundantly. So what I'd like to ask uh, and simply do today is reflecting on this first chapter of Acts, ask them how did they wait? And what might we learn from their waiting? What are the practices that you and I need to embrace if we are too going to receive that gift which alone will enable us to fulfill our vocation because our vocation is one with theirs? To be witnesses to this one who has come. We go back to very basic things, and I make no apologies for that. These are the things that the people of God must embrace in each and every generation. Three things I want to bring out from this text, uh, Acts chapter 1. The first is they devoted themselves to prayer. We read that again in the 14th verse of the first chapter. Uh, Luke says that following the ascension, the 11 apostles returned to that upper room where they had last met with Jesus on Monday, Thursday, where the last supper had taken place, that same upper room. And he says, and all of these, Luke says, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves. Very strong verb doing almost nothing else but praying. <laughs> Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his rose, the women who had been the first witnesses to the resurrection, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to his brothers, James and the rest, who somehow now have been incorporated into this new community, this new humanity, a wondrous thing. But again, they devoted themselves to prayer. And if you know your history and remember how the story progresses, you realize that this devotion to prayer was not a one-off kind of thing. They didn't say, all right, we're going to take a 10-day prayer time retreat and then get on with the work. No. We read that after the day of Pentecost when they added 3,000 more to their numbers, Luke says that these now also devoted themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves. Um, two, the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Note that, not just to prayer, but to the prayers. Not to simply uh, personalized understanding of coming into the presence of God, but the liturgical practices of the people of God, the daily rhythm of prayers, morning, noon, and night, the weekly rhythm of prayers, of gathering for the Eucharist, the, the sort of the annual re reflection of the cycles of prayer and a feast and a fast. They devoted themselves to a practice of life that brought them into and kept them in the very presence of God. 
they devoted themselves to these things. And can I just say the obvious? If you and I, individually and corporately, are to fulfill the vocation that God has given to us, we must do what they did. We must devote ourselves to prayer. Nothing good will happen. No, nothing of any use will be done if we do not devote ourselves to pray. How are you doing with that? How did you do this week with that? Uh, we need to do more individually, collectively, devoting ourselves to prayer. That's how they began. The second thing, a little bit harder to see, but I think is there underneath the text. They exposed themselves eagerly to the scriptures. They waited, uh, not only prayerfully, but what I might call scripturally. Uh, and I can understand why. Uh, Luke says again in verse 3 of Acts 1 that Jesus himself presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Forty days of instruction about the kingdom of God. And again, if you remember how Luke ended his first volume, uh, he acts, of course, as his second volume. His first volume, chapter 24 of Luke, uh, we read that great story of Jesus and the two on the road to Emmaus and how he comes alongside them. And Luke says this, that Jesus came and he uh, began with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Go back and read that story. And then get the fact that here is Jesus coming alongside these disciples who have not understood what has gone on in the crucifixion of the Messiah. And Jesus comes alongside them and gives them this well thought out Bible study. He shows them beginning with Moses carrying through all of the prophets, all the things concerning himself. And Luke says that these said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? <laughs> they were going back into those scriptures. They were devouring them and they were reading them with new eyes. A new way of understanding all these things that they had grown up with because they had just found out the key to understand it all. The key that brought together all of the strands, the many multiple strands of the Old Testament. The history and the revelation, the laws and the sacrifices. Everything began to make sense in the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah of Israel. And they knew it. So even as they were devoting themselves to prayer, I am sure they were devoting themselves, immersing themselves back in the story, carrying on with the teaching that Jesus had given to them for 40 days. 
devouring it, immersing themselves in it. Remarkable thing. They began to see Jesus in all of these things, but equally fascinating, they began to see themselves. They began to see their own situation in light of the scriptures. And that's what Luke begins to tell us. Peter, he says, stood up among the brothers. Uh, the company of persons was in all about 120. Just think a moment about that, 120. There was 11 of the disciples around. Uh, we might imagine that there were another 70, the folks who had been sent out in addition to those apostles. There's 81. There is the women who had been witnesses and who had accompanied Jesus from Galilee. Who knows, maybe another dozen. And now the family of Jesus was also added onto the number. So it was about 120 people gathered in that upper room. Must have been a big space. Maybe like this. Gathered up there, and he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Take away all of the subsidiary phrases. He said, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. We are not told about everything that they chatted about for those 10 days. But we are told that what they chatted about was Judas. What had happened to Judas? How to understand what he had done and how to understand what they were to do about it. They talked about their friend. They talked about their colleague. They talked about the one who betrayed their Lord. And they were trying to sort out all that had happened. Judas is a fascinating character. Uh, and I don't want to get sidetracked too much into what he is saying, but I was fascinated to read how Peter spoke about him. I just want to make two very quick points uh, one about Judas himself, and the other about what I think is happening in the scripture that we need to take care of and to be noted of. Note, for example, how reticent Peter is to judge Judas. Right? He acknowledges that he, Judas, was numbered among us, just like us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. He was no different than us. We were no different from him, he says. He says, but because of his death, and Luke goes on to describe how it happened and the horror of it, doesn't really matter. He says, but because of his death, right, they now needed to act. They needed to do something. They needed to choose someone to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Do you hear the reticence in that statement? No sense of judgment. 
no sense of knowing what was going on inside of Judas. I am convinced that they understood that they themselves had done exactly the same thing. They all had betrayed their Lord. They all had denied him in certain ways. They all had deserted him. There was no difference between them and Judas except they were alive to experience his vindication and their restoration. And Judas, by his own hand, was not. It's a fascinating thing to think about. But they were saying, he has gone to his own place. We do not know where that is. It is in the hands of God. Leave him to God. Right? But they are reflecting. And they're reflecting on the scriptures. Peter comes to this conclusion by his reading of Psalm 169 and 109. These two psalms of lament, these two psalms of David the king, who is dealing with the betrayal of a close friend. They read these scriptures in new ways because of what they had experienced together. And they go and they say, I, we understand that Judas was not the first to betray his Lord. He won't be the last. Right? And we understand that we too are part of that betrayal. We know what it's like to betray this one. And we know what it's like to suffer betrayal. And here's David crying out for vengeance. He's crying out for justice. They leave all of that in the hands of God, but for some reason or other, they saw in these psalms specifically that they now had a task to do, and these psalms were instructing them how to do it. Someone else needs to take his place. Right? And so they began to cast lots for Judas and or Matthias. But underneath it all, they have this devotion to Scripture uh, that informs them about their lives, instructs them what they are to do with their lives. And it, especially through the Psalms of the Psalter, and especially through the Psalms of David, in his betrayal, they found direction for their waiting. Very instructive. Devoted to prayer, immersed in the scriptures, and ready to act on what they found in them for their own life. And then coming to the third point, and this is the main point of the passage. They prepared themselves to fulfill their vocation. And for whatever reason, Peter became convinced that the Twelve itself had to be reconstituted. That because Judas had turned aside from this ministry, that somebody else had to be brought into it. Now, just be clear, Peter is not saying that the Twelve is the only witness to the resurrection. He knows that they are not. He knows, again, that the women were the first to receive that um, that witness and to bear that witness. He knows that the 70 are also part of the deal. And indeed, these two that were chosen, Eusebius, the church historian says, came out of that 70. So they were already part of the inner circle. And then, of course, there were the other women who had accompanied Jesus and the mother and brothers now of Jesus. All of these 
were part of the witnessing community. But Peter knew that the 12 had a vital role to play. They were not the only witness, but they were a vitally important and symbolic witness. For they symbolized the renewed Israel. They symbolized the ones who were, in essence, the Messiah had come to reconstitute his people in order to fulfill their vocation to the nations. The 12, he says, must be reconstituted, and they presented the means to do that. Now again, this is a unique witness to them, uh, and we do not count ourselves members of the 12, but we are counted on to be witnesses to Jesus. And as I reflected on this story, the criteria for their choice jumped off the page at me. And I just want to sort of share what that is and share some reflections on that, which I think is going to be helpful for us as we prepare for our own vocation. Listen again to the criteria that Peter set. He says this, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, all of the time that he went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Why does Mark start with the baptism of John? It's because these were the important times. The adult ministry of Jesus through to the ascension itself were the important times of witness. This is what they had to tell those who had not yet heard it. Beginning from the beginning of the John the Baptist, his entire adult ministry, they had to be witnesses to all the things that had happened. Uh, they had to also be witnesses through his horror of his death. No matter where they were, they had to know that they were the ones who experienced that, the highs and the lows of it. And then through that to the entire 40 days of his incredible vindication and his encounter with them, which restored them. Peter says, somebody who has been with us from the beginning, from the baptism of John until the day of ascension, that's the one that needs to be incorporated into the twelve. And again, it's because these, this is the life, this is the, the, the extent of the life that we are to witness to. They were talk about Jesus' incredible life, everything that he did, everything that he spoke, and the amazing impact that he would have. And there we have the gospel accounts, the four different accounts, uh, because they are seen by different people and experienced in different ways, the same things experienced by a multitude of folks. And they're saying, here is his life. This is what he did. This is what he spoke. And this is the impact he had on people, on everybody, even his enemies. Glorious life. Amazing life. 
Nobody lived like this. Nobody spoke like this. Nobody did the things this one did. He was unique. And we can speak to that. But they also had to speak, of course, about the horrors of his suffering and their own complicity in it. They did not stay with him. They were crushed by what had happened. And they knew themselves, even now, as those who had participated in some form or other in it. But finally, they were to speak again about his utter vindication and their experience of that vindication in their utter restoration. I mean, the fact that he comes to them and they are not judged. They are not slain. They are restored in a newness of life and brought into his very presence. It seems to me as we practice to give witness to the resurrection that this criteria that, that Peter has outlined might indeed be the frame for our witness. And I would leave it to you, and I would suggest that this might be a helpful thing to do in the next week. Take some time and ask yourself these questions. In fact, I would say write them down. Write them down. How were you attracted to this one? How are you now attracted to this one? What is it about his life that grabs your attention? What is it that's, that about the way he lived or spoke or did, acted? What is it that draws you into him? What is it? We need to be able to say why Jesus fascinates me enough to become my Lord. Why I am drawn to him to obey him, to be shaped like him. I long to be like him. What is it for you? What was it first? What is it now? That's a good first question to begin with. But don't stop there. Go on. How did you become a beneficiary of his death? How did you discover that this horrific event in human history was truly because of you? Both in the sense that you were complicit in it, it was because of your sins that he died, but also because you were its purpose. It is for your benefits. He did this because of you. He did this for you. How was it that you came to know that that is true? What was it? And finally, how have you come to experience his vindication and your restoration? How did you come to know that he's alive and he's alive in you, with you, around you, and that you are made new because of it? That's the frame of a witness.
How am I attracted to this one? How have I benefited from this one? And how have I been empowered and given commission by this one to live my life as his witness? Three basic practices. Devotion to prayer, immersion in the scriptures, and a preparedness to give witness to the one who now shapes our life. If we embrace these three things, we may indeed be led out by that spirit, empowered by that spirit in our ordinary times to actually fulfill the vocation he has given to us that we too might be counted among those who by our life, by our words, by our deeds, witness to the reality of the glory of this one. Lord, in your mercy, 